Real people. Real opinions. Real Talk Radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. I wonder, have you ever wondered what it's like to be with somebody for their final moments? There was that famous research by the Australian nurse that came out a few years back called Top Regrets of Dying. And I know a lot of people found that very interesting. Of course, she was only able to compile the research and get that insight because that was her job. To spend time with the dying, a little bit morbid maybe, but proximity to death often teaches us how to live better and appreciate life a little bit more. Our next guest has a job which puts him right in the front row to death. J.S. Park is a hospital chaplain, published author and viral blogger. And for eight years, he's been an interfaith chaplain at a thousand plus bed hospitals. He joins me now on the line to give us or share some of the insights of what sounds like a fascinating career. J.S., hi, how are you? Niall, good evening. Thank you so much for having me with you. You're welcome. Now, your line is very low, so unfortunately we're going to have to hurry it up a little bit and, and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to hear you okay. But can I ask you first, um, what made you want to go into a job that most people would consider to be reasonably morbid, I suppose? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I grew up with plenty of trauma and tragedy and a lot of trials in my home. And the one thing that I had always hoped for was to have a a voice and a sounding board and a presence, somebody who could be there with me in the hurt that I was experiencing. And I think that equipped me and gave me a calling for later in life to be in a place where I could be a presence and a sounding board for those who are in pain. And I found myself uh, in the hospital being able to be that presence, present for people Mm -hmm. who are experiencing perhaps the worst day of their lives. And it certainly is the worst day of your life. And by the way, can I ask you just, are you on a speakerphone at the moment? Maybe are you on a cordless or a speakerphone? Because it's a little bit low. I'm on a corded phone. Would it be better if I was on speaker? No, no, no. No, no, it, it should be. But that's it's probably better the way it is. But we, we'll deal with it. We'll get through it. And during that time, I suppose you have a personal connection to people. And, and you have a very short time to make a personal connection to people because it's usually in their, their last moments, or certainly they wouldn't have long left in their lives. So you have to, you know, obviously create that relationship very quickly. Yes, for sure. And very much most of my job is listening. Mm. It's being present. And so, in fact, this interview might be the most that I talk all week, because what I'm really doing is I'm allowing space for people to vent or wail or share their story, tell their story, to grieve in any way that they need without shaming them but validating all their feelings. And that can, it, like you said, there's a connection that needs to happen quickly. Um, and at the same time, most people that I go see, they want that connection. They want somebody who will be open to anything that they're experiencing, all their emotional expression. And do you find, because I remember when my mother died, uh, I was in the hospital and she spent the last month of her life in hospital. And I was, I remember the last two days. I, she told me more in that two days than she told me in her whole life. 
Um, you know, things that I'd never known about before. I was adopted. She talked to me a lot about that, which she'd never spoken about while I was, even though I knew I was adopted. But she never spoke about it. It was like a kind of, there was a stigma to it and she never wanted to talk about it. But she, she talked about it very openly. She talked about her intimate relationship with my father. She talked about just things that she had never spoken about because she was quite conservative and Christian. And do you find that people open up and they tell you things that they just want to get it off their chest? Yes. First of all, Niall, I just want to say I'm sorry to hear uh, about your mother, uh, that she had to spend the last month of her life in a hospital, so I'm very sorry to hear that. Oh, that's okay. And, uh, yeah, and it's also true that usually at the end, if a patient is awake and alert and they're lucky enough to be able to communicate, uh, they want to be able to share uh, their stories and to be seen. That's the important thing because it seems that many people, uh, spend a lot of their lives having to hide themselves for a lot of reasons, for surviving, uh, for being able to get along in the community, hiding themselves out of fear of retaliation or not being able to fit in or be with. And at the end, even if it's a stranger, even if it's with me, that they've met me for the first time, they still want to be able to be seen. And part of my work is making visibility uh, seeing this person maybe for the first and even the final time. And so I will hear a lot of confessions. I will hear a lot of sharing. I will hear a lot of people who have held secrets even for 40, 50, 60 years finally feel free at the edge of mortality to share the things that they've been holding and hiding. And have you ever heard stuff that kind of really took, you know, you were kind of taken back by it. You were shocked by it. I, I don't know if people ever admitted to criminality, but... But have they ever admitted things to you like, I don't know, strange things like, I've never loved my wife, can I just tell you that? Or, or something that you just wouldn't imagine would come out of somebody's mouth, you know, the day, the day before they die or the day they die. Is that, is that something that happens, that people say those things or share those secrets with you that they know you'll never tell anybody, uh, unless you're doing it anonymously in an interview? <laughs> um, is that something they'll do? Yeah, absolutely. You know, out of respect for their privacy and confidentiality, I... I definitely hear things that are shocking and surprising. You know, there is um, a law involving clergy in which anything that somebody says that is a confessional type sharing, we keep it unless it's mandated, you know, reporting. But um, certainly I'll hear things, you know, sometimes I'll get letters even uh, after they've been discharged or maybe as they're nearing the end, they may send me a letter sharing a whole bunch of things because they wanted at least one other person to know. Um, but in all these things that they share, I never judge. You know, as shocking as it might be, I don't even lift an eyebrow because they don't it's want to. It's hard, you know, isn't it? If you hear something yeah. quite shocking, maybe that, you know, that you wouldn't judge, particularly if somebody yes. tells you about infidelity or if, or if they tell you about maybe not so much criminality but something that would be immoral. It's hard not to judge, isn't it? Yes, I mean, uh, you know, I guess the clinical, technical definition of a chaplain is a non-anxious, non-judgmental, comforting presence. Mm. And so part of not judging is being able to receive and embrace everything this person is saying. And Niall, I can tell you that 99.9% of the last words that I've heard that involves something like that, like what you're speaking of, a confession about something immoral, there's always regret. There's always, I would say 99% of the time, I hear that that person truly does feel guilt about it and wish they could have chosen something better. I mean, 
you talk about as well, you know, the fact that I suppose, and, and I'm, I mentioned earlier on there, just before you come on there, I, I mentioned about the Australian nurse that wrote a book a few years back about uh, top regrets of dying, of the dying. And she talks about, you know, when you see somebody else die and you speak to somebody else who is passing away and they talk about their life or they, they share secrets with you, that you learn something from that. Or, and I think most of us have been with somebody who has passed away. And, you know, and maybe straight after that, we kind of feel this idea that life is worth living a little bit more or that we value life a little bit more. You kind of do that every day. So I so do you does that give you more of a value in life? Absolutely. You know, the book that you're mentioning, Top Five Regrets of the Dying, that was by Bronnie Ware. And uh, she observed exactly, I think, what I observed, uh, that there are quite a lot of regrets uh, about the way that life was lived. And so for me, having seen hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, dying, uh, sick, uh, injured, uh, and sitting at deathbeds, I think on one hand, I've gotten maybe a bit of a death anxiety. Um, I've seen so many different ways that people can get sick and get injured. And so certainly there's been sort of a fearfulness or a caution or a carefulness uh, that's been instilled in me. I, I, I seem to see so much mortality that once in a while, you know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll make sure that my wife is still breathing, things like mm. that. And at the same time, that death anxiety, as hard as that is, I think it's also deepened or maybe expanded my the depth in which I am present to the moment because my constant pervasive thought now is this could be the last time. This could be the last moment. This could be our last conversation. This could be my last meal. And uh, I'm trying now not to wait for mortality to creep in because it is, of course, coming for us all. And so one thing in life why do I need sure to wait? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to wait for that. I don't want to wait. And I think there is something about this job, about seeing this constantly, as you said, that has deepened and expanded uh, me being able to be in the moment and beholden to the moment. I, I suppose the worst ones are probably people who have um, been involved in a trauma, uh, i.e. a car crash, you know, or, or whatever it happens to be, something, an accident or something that happened where somebody is, is, is going to die quite quickly and, and possibly in a lot of pain as well. Whereas those who die of a, a long-term illness and maybe have, you know, a day or two, you know, to, to ponder on, on death, you know, that's slightly different. So I suppose you have to be quicker to deal with those who are dying of trauma. And, and they didn't expect to die. Whereas somebody who has a lifetime of illness or a long-term illness has a little bit more time to think about what they want to say or what they want to do. So is that more reactive, I suppose, when somebody dies and, you know, or is about to die from, you know, uh, an automobile accident or whatever it happens to be? Yeah, absolutely. You know, generally I've seen that that's true, that if there is something that is unexpected and it is an interruption to life that came out of nowhere, then there, w- there may be a more extreme expression of emotion. If someone is suffering from something chronic, there may even be, if that patient uh, when that patient dies, there may even be something like relief or a sense of peace and gratitude um, that they are no longer suffering. But at the same time, now I, you know, I tend to say that everyone grieves differently just as we grieve mm. differently. And so I don't want to generalize and say this sort of sudden accident is different than a chronic long-term illness. 
Um, I've seen all different kinds of responses to loss, just as many as there are different types of loss. And so it runs across an entire wide spectrum, uh, just the depth of humanity and all the ways that we respond to loss. So sometimes a sudden injury, an accident, if when I make that phone call as a chaplain to reach out to next of kin, that's part of my role. Sometimes they may scream over the phone. Other times there may be complete numbness, no tears. They may be shocked. There may be cognitive fog. Does that mean that they care any less? No, it could mean that their body is in shock and this is the way that they're coping with it in the moment. Someone who has been dealing with uh, their family member suffering chronic illness for two years or a year or their 60-day stay in the hospital, they may have held it together, quote-unquote, the entire time, and then when their loved one dies, it's like a dam bursts open. And yeah. that's when they're screaming, wailing, crying. And so to answer your question, Niall, generally maybe that's true, I think. But yep. at the same time, I've seen the whole range of responses to all different kinds of loss. And what do you, what do you learn from it, or what should we learn from death? Because we've all been in that situation. Well, I think most of us have at some point in our lives, or we will be in that situation where we're there with somebody at a hospital bed, you know, where they're, they're, they're kind of grasping at those few final moments, trying to breathe or whatever it is. And it is agonizing to watch somebody pass away, particularly if you, if you love that person. But we, I, I mentioned earlier on that we kind of, the one thing we might learn from that is to value life more. But when you've seen it so much, what have you learned from that? Hmm. That's a great question, Niall. You know, I think I can speak on this on, on two levels. I think for me, I alluded to it earlier when I talked about from death anxiety comes maybe almost, uh, it might be too bit on the nose, but a life appreciation, just an expanded and deepened sense of everything is fragile, it's all frail, it could go quickly. I've written before that we're, we're like paper lanterns and the fire is sunned, and at any moment could just burn up. Mm-hmm. And so that causes me, that moves me uh, to be able to be in this moment as much as I am able to be I would also say that for those who are experiencing loss, there's, I've seen a very human instinct for people to say things or do things to shut down somebody else's grief response or even shut down our own because we are even indoctrinated, I can go as far as to say, to suppress and bury and deny the grief response in ourselves because grief is scary. Facing oh, our is. mortality. Mm-hmm. It's scary, yeah. Talking about death and loss is extremely fearful. We have a wonderful um, ability as human beings, sorry for interrupting, but we have a wonderful ability as human beings to forget about death. And it is the one thing, as you rightly say, in, in life that we're sure is going to happen to us at some point. And you would imagine, because it's so tragic, that we would be thinking about it for the whole of our 82 years on this planet, generally speaking, that's the average. But we don't. And we think about it, as I've noticed, I'm 60, we think about it less as we get older, which is weird, because it's more when you're younger, you seem to think about it more. We have this amazing ability to forget about the most tragic event in our lives until it happens. Yes. And so I think talking about it more, being open about it, being even able to plan for it, telling our loved ones, uh, if I end up in a situation where I'm not able to make decisions for myself, if you could dignify me in these ways. I've had resp- um, requests for things like, if I ever end up on life support, please keep chapstick on my lips because I don't want dry lips. Mm-hmm. Because that patient's mother had died uh, in a manner that 
that they were not able to eat or drink anything, and so they didn't want to go out that way. I've had patients say things like, uh, please bring my dog to say goodbye, or please make my room look like home and surround it with photos. I say that to say, I think we need to talk about death and the ways that we want to die and the ways that in which we think we can uh, get the most dignity and honoring of ourselves. And that requires a conversation about mortality. And I mm-hmm. think those who look away from it, I completely understand why we would because it is very hard to talk about. And at the same time, when the moment comes, and it does for us all, I would love to know what my parents want, what my wife wants, what my daughter wants, if that moment happens to come for them first. Because one way or another, I'll see you go, or you'll see me go. It's a rough thing. And so how can we best prepare for that? I mean, I know I'm not religious myself, but I know a lot of my listeners are. And I know religion, religion for a lot of people plays a huge role when people are passing away. And I don't know, some people maybe believe that there's a soul and the soul goes off to heaven or wherever it goes, or they believe that they're always around and they're always present after they pass away. I don't know what you believe personally. Um, but do you believe faith plays a huge role in end of life for most people? And, and even people who maybe don't have religion throughout their life suddenly turn to faith just before they die, maybe hedging their bets. I don't, I don't know. Do you think faith, faith plays a huge role? Yes. You know, I'm an interfaith chaplain, so first I need to mention that because I will see anyone of any background, any faith tradition, any person with the God of their own understanding or with no God at all. And so I'm open to all of it. And I do think, whether it's faith or no faith, that our beliefs and our worldview absolutely have a role in how we cope with, how we understand, how we embrace our own mortality. And I would say that sometimes a particular theology can actually be more harmful to a patient if they feel, for example, that God is punishing them or somehow correcting them or this is some sort of lesson that you deserve, your illness Mm -hmm. or injury or accident. And so at times, faith can actually harm a patient. But other times, I've seen how theology, that person's faith and belief, can give them hope and give them a framework in which they build meaning out of the thing that is happening to them. And if you look at the studies of some disaster survivors and things like that, those who have any sort of framework for meaning about the events that occur to them, especially trauma, they actually have better health outcomes. And they have more, uh, I guess you could say, more positive outlook or uh, perhaps uh, are able to recover through the trauma better. I think they call that post-traumatic growth. And so there are times when faith helps. And so really it depends on the things that we believe, but also in the ways in which faith can be uh, a tool that can be helpful. And I've seen it be helpful. I've seen it be harmful. And what I hope to do as a chaplain is how can I shine a little bit of a light on the patient's way of understanding their faith that would be more helpful to them and question the things that I perceive or that it may seem that is harmful to them. Generally speaking, when people are dying, and I know this is a very morbid question, but are people frightened, generally speaking, or have people, do most people that you see, have, do they accept that they're going to die and accept it well? Or are, you know, do you see terror in people's faces? Are people frightened of death or not ready for it yet, maybe? Yes, it, you know, it runs the whole range of emotions. Uh, the answer to your question is yes, I've seen all of that. And uh, that is why, of course, I I would be an advocate for if a patient needed medication 
in order to help their, their death anxiety. Certainly, I would advocate for that. Um, I've seen a, a whole range of emotions regarding that. I think one thing I've seen that maybe is not always talked about, most patients, if they're able to talk at the end, they will express an empathic anticipatory grief. And what I mean by that is they will mourn those that they're leaving behind because they know that the people who are staying, the few remaining, will grieve the person who is dying. So let's say I'm on my deathbed. I would, of course, be absolutely worried about my wife and my daughter and how they would handle me dying and how they would handle me being gone. So I may be at peace about my life. I may be at peace at the end and say I've done everything that I've wanted to do, seen all I've wanted to see, but I'm very worried for my wife and daughter. And so whichever range of emotion that that patient is experiencing, whether that's terror or peace, uh, usually I see that grief there, that they're worried about their loved ones. And it just mm. shows me the basic decency and humanity of people. And how much yeah, they're quite really selfless, are really, aren't they? People, I mean, human beings are quite selfless, really, in those situations. Yeah. They worry more about how the wife is going to you know, look after herself financially or their husband financially or whatever it happens to be. They worry about things like that rather than worrying about themselves. Yes, absolutely. And even going back to when people confess things and they you know, express guilt or they want to share their last stories, I've seen in the end the, the common goodness of people. And I really, really believe people are good. And despite having made choices that they may regret, having that regret, for me at least, indicates uh, the basic goodness of people. Mm-hmm. I have to say it's a, it's a really interesting occupation. And uh, Do you find it, by the way, a morbid occupation because I know, or do you become deset? Maybe this is insensitive to ask you, but do you become desensitized to death? You know, I know that there are people who, you know, healthcare workers and such, who may need to compartmentalize because that's their disposition. They can only do the job if they're able to fit things into compartments, and I don't blame them for that um, because sometimes this work, the only way that we can keep going among death and dying and sickness is to be able to uh, almost split ourselves in the parts. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, uh, I don't, I've been doing this eight years. I think I'm one of those people that just can't leave the work at work. I take it home with me. I know difficult. that feeling. I know that feeling, yeah. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, I have a therapist. I, I do take medication. I've talked about that a lot online, just having a, a, lo- a, a lifelong, uh, I guess you could say, battle with mental health. Um, but, yeah, I can't leave that at work. I do take that with me. But I think the thing that keeps me open and keeps me compassionate and feeling with is what makes me a chaplain. So I think there are chaplains who certainly they can compartmentalize, and I'm almost envious of that sometimes. Yeah. But speaking for myself, I think the thing that makes me a chaplain is to be able to feel with. And for me, that's what I have to be very, very careful to manage. Lots of self-care, making sure I'm taking breaks, making sure I'm processing. Uh, but at least for me... I can I can answer by saying I'm not desensitized. Maybe if I am, that's when I need to uh, be able to retire and leave from the work. But uh, I, I'm I'm fully mm. sensitive and open uh, to everything the patient experiences too. Well, they they say there's a job out there for everybody, and obviously that's the job for you because you do it so well. And I know you had a book out uh, going back in 2020 called Voices We Carry: The Finding Your One True Voice in a World of Clamor and Noise. 
So if people are interested, of course, they can look that up. Um, I really appreciate you talking to us tonight. I'd love to actually have a longer conversation with you, but unfortunately we're always very limited for time on the radio. But I'd love to have a longer conversation with you again some other day maybe, and we'll do a longer interview or something because it's been wonderful talking to you and very interesting apart from anything else. Uh, thank you very much indeed, J.S. Park. And I appreciate you coming on the air and talking to us this evening. Val, thank you. You ask great questions, and I really appreciate your time. Real people. Real opinions. Real Talk Radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Oh.